Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Recently, FDA announced that uh, it's going to end a program about alternative summary reporting. And, you know, there's been some uh, some really tough headlines on this topic, frankly, uh, uh, you know, allocating that, that FDA is ending a program that hid millions of reports on faulty medical devices. Uh, is that true? Is it spin? Well, uh, enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, where Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences and I discussed this program and the pros and cons of it and uh, what happens next. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And today, well, there, there, recently, there was some, some news that uh, came out that the FDA was canceling this thing called the uh, Alternative Summary Reporting Program. And I thought, who better to talk about this than good friend and frequent guest on the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences. Mike, welcome. Thank you, John. So you and I actually talked about this not quite a year ago, but last summer in, in 2018 about this program from FDA to allowing uh, med device companies to summarize malfunctions. Might be good to kind of start there with a little bit of a, a recap or an overview of what this that program was about before we dive into you know why this program is now being canceled. Yeah, great opportunity to talk about this, John. And as always, thank you for the invitation to to speak with you and your audience. So you're right. Last summer, you and I did a podcast on this topic when FDA announced that they were creating this summary reporting program. In fact, that was a little bit deceptive in and of itself because summary reporting has been around actually for about 20 years. But some of the things that we talked about in that previous podcast, we said that depending on the severity of the malfunction, companies are given a a specified amount of time in order to report it. The company has an obligation, obviously, to report severe life-threatening events in a timely fashion. But here's the thing that was uh, a little different and what's generated the controversy uh, lately and what's now leading to the cancellation of this program today. Uh, FDA had allowed companies to, instead of report malfunctions or problems individually, if there were similar causes of these problems, they can lump them all together into what's called a summary report. And in some cases, for less severe events, they could they could report these as summaries um, just once a quarter. But the most important thing that we talked about in that podcast, John, is that regardless of what the reporting requirements are, the company should be proactive. In other words, keep an eye not just on our device, but on our competitor's device to see if there are similar problems that could happen to us and so on. So those were essentially some of the, the takeaway messages, I think, from our discussion last summer. Yeah, I mean, and and regardless of whether or not there is a, a, quote, formal program from FDA or not, doesn't that just seem like good logical sense that these are good practices that you would want to do anyway? 
Oh, I couldn't agree with you more, John. But of course, yeah. the underlining assumption of your statement there is that regulation is always logical. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's not always the case. Yeah. And, and folks, um, you probably know this by now, if you've listened to any episodes of the Global Medical Device Podcast or had an opportunity to to hear uh, Mike talk at, at any uh, webinars, either through Greenlight Guru or any other venues that Mike is presenting, just because, of, I mean, we shouldn't be waiting on regulations to tell us when and what to do. So um, we won't dive into that, or well, we might, but, but uh, I want to kind of shift the focus and talk about, you know, why has FDA canceled this program? Was it not working? I mean, what, what, why put it in place and then, you know, less than a year later say, uh, change our mind? What, what's going on? Yeah, good question, John, uh, because uh, literally FDA announced the cancellation of this program within weeks of us doing this recording. So this is a very timely and important topic that is going to affect the entire medical device industry, all manufacturers in this business in one fashion or another. So the question is, as you just said, why is FDA canceling this alternative summary reporting? I hate to say it, John, but I think the root cause is very simple. It's because of the way this program has been reported in the popular press. There have been a number of articles over the last several months uh, talking about this particular program and spinning it in a particular way. I'll just read to you the title of one article, and we can provide these as links uh, on the website for the audience to read themselves. FDA to end program that hid millions of reports of faulty medical devices. It goes on to say that the Food and Drug Administration announced, and this is a direct quote, by the way, FDA announced it is shutting down its controversial alternative summary reporting program and ending its decades-long practice of, quote, allowing medical device makers to conceal millions of reports of harm and malfunctions from the general public. The one other uh, quote to share from that particular article, but there have been other articles saying essentially the same thing. It was revealed that the obscure program was vast, collecting more than a million reports since 2016. For example, in the first nine months of uh, 2018, just last year, FDA continued to, re to accept more than 190,000 injury reports and 45,000 malfunction malfunctions malfunction reports under this, quote, hidden alternative summary program. Now, again, I don't want to bury your audience with a bunch of numbers. Quite frankly, that's not the important thing. What's more important, I think, for our audience to understand is the spin here from the press. What does hidden mean, John? In other words, if I summarize a bunch of similar events into one particular report, is that hiding the information? In my opinion, no, it's just creating a more efficient way to report that information. So I would argue, actually, John, and perhaps you might disagree, that nothing, in fact, was ever hidden here. Perhaps it was de-emphasized, or as I like to say, not draw attention to, and this is something that I do in my regulatory submissions all the time, but it's not hidden. So were these uh, summaries hidden? You know, when were the information in these summaries, John, do you think when we summarize similar information together, assuming, of course, that there's similar problems, do you think that's hiding information? 
You know, I don't think so. And I know you and I, we had a chance to actually catch up face to face a couple of weeks ago and um, talk about a, a number of things. And I, we, we did chat about this particular topic briefly. Um, but, but no, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, to me, it's if, if there's nothing new, nothing of, of quote value, you know, why do I have to be continue to just do it for redundancy's sake. I mean, it's that, I think if you do it for, for the sake of redundancy, even if it's, you know, the, the same type of event, but just a different occurrence of that same event, uh, same issue and, and so on. Actually that, that can create in my opinion, a lot of bad habits. It can start to, to drive more checkbox, you know, form type men, mentality. Oh, I got to fill out this form. And, and that won't, that won't make things better. It'll just create, you know, more of a paper blizzard, so to speak. I, but no, I, I, I would want people to to share new information, meaningful information. If it's, uh, you know, another occurrence of the same event, I, I, I see no no problem at all with summarizing this at all. Well, I agree, John, and we'll get into some of those details as we discuss this further. But just to be clear, I do think that uh, we have to be a little bit careful with our with our terminology here, you made the comments new or not valuable information. To me, whether the information is new or not really doesn't matter. Even if I have a hundred events that occur that are brand new that have never happened before, if they're all very, very similar, in other words, if they are substantially equivalent to use a regulatory punt, then why can't I report all of that new information in one summary? Totally. So, as a result, you know, whether you and I, uh, you know, think that this is hiding or not, I think that the FDA's response is 100% predictable. In fact, I would say that FDA had no choice but to ban this summary reporting because uh, of the way it's been portrayed in the popular press. The title that I read a moment ago uh, was specifically designed to get people's attention. And so wow. from the press's perspective, they're <laughs> doing their job. It's a, it's a classic example of spin. Yeah, I mean, it's and for the layperson who may not understand or you know get into the nuances of of what's expected and required of a medical device company, if you read that headline and that first statement on that on that particular article that you mentioned, I mean, you may think, oh my goodness, what is going on in this industry? I mean, it, it is, and I'm in the industry, and I'm reading, I'm like, holy crap, what is going on? <laughs> Well, I couldn't agree more, John. And listen, you know me and our audience uh, knows me. When FDA makes a decision that I agree with, I am one of the first to support them. But on the other hand, when they make a decision for whatever reasons that they don't agree, that I don't agree with, then I think that we need to have further discussion. In my not so humble opinion, this is the totally wrong decision. So back to the fundamental question of why is the FDA doing this? Well, part of it, as I said, is because of the press. The other part of the explanation is because it's a very simple solution to, to implement. In other words, it requires absolutely no intelligence whatsoever to say to people, you cannot summarize this information. You have to report each individual event separately regardless of its, uh, if it's similar or different to what we already know. This is, in fact, the same reason why, John, many people, you and I have talked about this before, advocate the 10-year predicate rule and some of the other regulatory solutions because it doesn't require any thinking. It doesn't require any intelligence. I don't mean to be harsh, John, but unfortunately, you mentioned it, the tick box mentality. Is your predicate 
less than 10 years old? If yes, then you pass. If no, then you fail. Is your summary, sorry, is your um, uh, report uh, describing only one event? If yes, you pass. If no, you fail. You, You fail. So it's easier to create and enforce these regulatory absolutes. Uh, in other words, tell people something that you can do versus something that you cannot do, as opposed to allowing professionals like you and I to actually think, to use our professional judgment to make decisions, the best decisions that we can, given the situation at hand. Regrettably, John, it's a classic example of regulatory micromanagement, um, because it takes all of the decision the thinking out of this process. And once again, some people might think I'm being overly harsh. Perhaps I am. But uh, I'm giving you, uh, you know, my assessment of this change. All right. It feels like there might be some things that aren't aren't being discussed on this topic. I mean, you, you know, you, you shared your not so humble opinion that this is the wrong decision and so on. But but what is uh, I mean, and, and maybe it is a knee jerk or a reaction to the popular press. But but what are we missing here? What What is not being talked about in these conversations? It's a great question, John. You know, all of the discussion, at least in the context of, of, of this uh, situation, is about summary reporting. But there's a whole bunch of other issues, ongoing challenges that are just important or perhaps even more important that are not being discussed. For example, what constitutes an event that needs to be reported versus one that does not need to be reported, whether it's a manufacturing problem, whether it's a clinical uh, trial, a uh, clinical problem that we find in post-market surveillance and so on. This issue of what constitutes a significant event um, is always been a very, very um, nebulous topic, at least to me, in spite of the fact that FDA has put out a number of guidances. It's a still about as clear as substantial equivalence. And again, I'm using that regulatory pun on purpose. Um, but again, putting things in, into perspective here, what's more, what's most important to me is not whether you report a particular event or not. I mean, at the end of the day, John, I think you and I would both agree, uh, agree that that's a matter of paperwork. What's much yeah. more important for our audience to understand, being the, the manufacturers, is that the company needs to investigate these, the, the incidents and then act, if necessary, to minimize or to prevent these problems from happening in the future. And there are, you know, as we've talked about a little bit before, John, there are product liability implications here as well. If you don't report an event, whether you're required to or not, one of the things that somebody like me as a expert witness can say is they didn't report it, they didn't investigate it, and therefore that just sounds bad to, to, to everybody. So that's one of the issues that I think needs more discussion. Another thing that seem, people seem to be overlooking is the historical perspective on this, John, because as I mentioned earlier, this program is not new. It's been going on for quite a long time. And when it comes to exceptions, we'll talk about that in a moment, but FDA has allowed companies for years to reach agreements with for, for about 100 medical devices that allow them to cease public reports of certain types of problems. And the only way that anybody can find out about this is by filing a freedom of information request, which, as you probably know, John, is a pain in the you-know-what. It takes months, <laughs> oftentimes yeah. years, to get that information, which is a topic of a different discussion. I mentioned a moment ago FDA's uh, checkered history of granting exceptions to the alternative summary reporting. For example, in 2016, 
there were 84 reports on surgical staplers causing harm that were disclosed in FDA's MAUD database. However, when you look at the actual numbers, there were about 10,000 malfunction reports that were either summarized or not reported publicly. So that's the kind of you know, what what companies are looking at and or, or what some people are causing um, calling hype. And as a result, that particular device and similar devices have been subject to lawsuits over patient deaths and so on and so on. So the product liability implications here, John, are just as important to me as the regulatory implications. And one last thing that I'll mention, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, John. Some of the folks out there are saying that more information is necessary to give product liability attorneys ammunition to go after some of these companies. Well, let me tell you from my experience as an expert witness, <laughs> the information that's publicly available, whether it comes from FDA or not, is never enough, whether it's a summary or an individual report. And that might be the first step in discovery. But I rely on the documentation that I get directly through or from the company, from the discovery process. Most of that is never reported publicly. And some of it is not even reported to the FDA, but that's a topic of a different discussion. I, I was chuckling because uh, when you talk about information that a uh, liability attorney needs, I mean, I, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of criteria there in some cases. I mean, it could be a singular event. And if the uh, company involved has deep enough pockets, that, that might be enough motivation from a liability perspective. But anyway, that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> it is. And as you know, John, as a, as, a, as a good quality and regulatory guy, you know, in quality and regulatory, people are saying, you know, documentation, documentation, documentation. But on the product liability side, as you and I have talked about before, that can be the kiss of death. And I also would say that the opportunity for a medical device company is, uh, and you uh, you and I have talked about this, uh, I don't remember the exact topic, but we've talked about this notion before, is, you know, it's pretty easy to, to identify a trend when there have been numerous events. The, the art here, the opportunity here is to start to identify opportunities for improvement and to be proactive when you know there's maybe just one or a couple of, of events, uh, and you know actually this goes back to another conversation that we've had recently about uh, PACA <laughs> being more preventive rather than corrective. But anyway, like I said, we've covered a lot of those topics before. Right, I couldn't agree more. So, so thus far we've talked a little bit about the program as it existed before and why FDA is canceling it. Maybe at this point, John, for our audience, we should move on and talk about the yeah. new program that's being um, um, created to, to replace. Yeah, absolutely. So, so there's a new program. Talk a little bit about what that entails and, and you know, why it's different or better or worse uh, in your not-so-humble opinion. Well, I wouldn't exactly characterize it as a new program, but it's sort of a, a, a modification of what we already have. We are essentially, again, to use a, a purposeful regulatory um, paradigm here, this is sort of the special 510K that we're submitting or considering now to follow up to, to make some changes to the previous program. And I hope, John, you appreciate my not so subtle use of regulatory humor. So basically, the, the changes that the audience needs to be aware of, this newer summary reporting program 
now allows makers of over 5,500 types of medical devices to send reports to the agency via spreadsheets logging the device malfunctions. Another thing that's changing is, I mentioned earlier, the the exemptions that FDA has uh, made in the past for companies to, to not be required to, to be part of this program. FDA is ending the exemption program, which probably is a good thing, although I'm not 100% sure about that yet. Uh, but some of the things that have been exempted in the past, John, have been devices like breast implants. I mentioned a moment ago, surgical staplers, pelvic meshes, uh, defibrillators and pacemakers. Many of these probably sound very familiar to you in, in our audience, John, because many of the devices I just mentioned yeah. were devices that were featured in the painting edge. Yeah, um, I mean, and these are the ones that are that are uh, seem to be the uh, popular devices in the popular press uh, that that unfortunately are being used to negatively characterize the entire medical device industry. Absolutely. Correct. And of, and of course, John, you and I both know that that's purely coincidence, right? It's only after, it, sorry, it, nobody could have predicted that these devices that are described in the press, as you just said, would have led to FDA, you know, canceling this program. You know, those, those right. cannot possibly no. connect those dots. And again, I hope our, our, our audience appreciates, you know, my, my sarcasm here. Uh, but anyway, um, so companies are now required to submit these reports to the MOD database, which I would argue is a very good thing. I think everything should be submitted to either the MOD database or one of the similar databases, because this is, in fact, what people uh, you know talk about with transparency. The yeah. question is, John, how much detail do we provide? This is a, a question that I get frequently with from companies is, okay, we've had an incident, we need to report it. How much detail do we put in there? You know, that's that's the question. And I've actually suggested to FDA we create a mechanism where we have perhaps different databases, one database that's public like MAUD, where we present a little bit less detailed information, and another database that is only of use to, um, say, FDA and maybe some independent agencies that would have more uh, detail. I think these are all solvable problems. But, you know, none of the current solutions take it that far yet. Perhaps the most important thing that our audience needs to be aware of when it comes to moving forward is that unlike the alternative summary program as it existed in the past, medical device makers will no longer be allowed to report serious injuries in a summary fashion. My response to that is, duh. But again, what constitutes a serious injury? That's still a very nebulous thing. But even taking it a step further, John, I still think that's an oversimplification because even if we have serious injuries, serious reports, if they're all very, very similar, if they're all substantially equivalent, can't we still lump them together? You know, I just think that it's it's a matter it's it's not a matter of transparency. It's a matter of efficiency. Why do I have to have you know a hundred different reports saying exactly the same thing? That just doesn't make doesn't uh, you know make any sense to me. And so, as a result, here's the here's the actionable item for our audience to take away: manufacturers now, for better or for worse, are required to file individual reports describing each case of patient harm 
you cannot lump them together. In my opinion, John, as I said earlier, this is overreaction. I think it's perfectly appropriate to summarize even serious reports as long as they are similar, as long as they are substantially equivalent, as long as we include the numbers of patients that are being affected, the number of devices that are being affected, as long as we're very, very clear at the very beginning that this is a summary report, not an individual report. To me, as a, as a professional, John, I don't need to be micromanaged. I should be able to use my own professional judgment to make that decision. I don't need FDA or product liability attorneys or anybody else to micromanage me on that one. But that's just me, John. I don't know. Maybe you feel differently. No, I don't feel differently at all. And let me um, just take a, a quick pause. Folks, I want to remind you, I'm talking with Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences, and we're we're talking about some of these recent uh, changes in, in FDA regarding uh, alternative summary reporting, some of the nuances around that. But, you know, obviously you're, you've been uh, great fans and, and hopefully uh, listening to the Global Medical Device podcast for a long time. If this is your first episode, welcome. We have uh, over 100 episodes, uh, so you got some catching up to do. But did you know that Greenlight Guru, we also recently announced and launched a brand new podcast? That's right a brand new podcast focused on med tech true quality stories. It's exciting for me to, to get to, to do all of these podcast episodes. I'm really enjoying the med tech true quality stories because we get a chance to dive into the inner workings of a lot of med tech companies and, and talking to CEOs and founders and, and others who are involved with you know, bringing products to market and some of the challenges and barriers and obstacles that these companies are faced with along the way and what they're doing to overcome it while embracing what true quality means. So wherever you're listening to this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, type in a search, you'll be able to go and and find med tech true quality stories, but check it out. It's really exciting. So my getting getting back to the topic at hand, uh, and you hit on a little bit, but you know, uh, it seems like there's still an opportunity to to provide summary reports, and to your point, you know, maybe a, a knee jerk reaction uh, in some respects to to what's happening in the popular press as to why FDA may be a little bit reticent to that. But um, you know, I guess let's kind of summarize or start to work towards summarizing this a little bit. You know, what is the it feels like the pendulum is certainly swinging back and forth uh, somewhat rapidly, but but there is an impact on this. So you know, and, and you know, who's paying for this? What's the result of this? What's what are the consequences of this? Yeah, that's a great question, John, and that's one of the things that concerns me the most. What's the result of this ban? So now we have more resources that are going to be required, both in the companies as well as in the FDA, to sort through all of these individual reports. And many times these same reports are going to have exactly the same or very, very similar information. In other words, we're reporting the same information over and over and over again. And as a result, it makes it harder, in fact, not easier to find the most important information. As a result, this leads to a very inefficient situation and, um, quite frankly, a lose-lose situation for everybody. So I think this is one of those areas where the proposed solution here to banning these summaries, uh, whether you want to consider it micromanagement or not, actually has the potential to do more harm than good. Uh, 
Um, some people might say that this improves transparency, but transparent. But but transparency aside, does that improve the system? The most important, uh, the most concerning thing that I have about this, John, is that this that these that um, because we can't do summary reporting any, anymore, this is going to lead to a form of what I call over-reporting. In other words, as I said a moment ago, having lots and lots of individual reports saying exactly the same thing. And not to be cynical, John, but I've considered using this strategy myself. This could actually provide a mechanism for some companies to hide information. In other words, to hide the tree in the middle of the forest, so to speak, if you if you understand the, the, the yeah. metaphor that I'm using. In other words, you know, if we report a whole bunch of problems individually that are not that serious and within them, you know, sort of buried in the mix, so to speak, there is one problem that is more serious, then, you know, we're certainly not drawing attention to that problem. One of the underlying assumptions, John, is that why would anybody assume that anybody, whether it's at FDA or anybody else, reads and scrutinizes every one of these reports. I think it's just naive to have that, uh, to, to make that assumption. Yeah, um, I, mean, I know. I was just going to say, it, it feels like this is setting up a situation for uh, analysis paralysis, you know, more isn't better. <laughs> yeah, more isn't better. To me, or, or put a slightly different way, John, it's something that I say to my graduate students all the time, it's quality, not quantity. So again, not to be cynical, but I, as a you know, as a as a clever regulatory consultant, could use this actually as an opportunity to not draw attention to certain information. It's not hiding. The information is disclosed. The information is presented to the FDA or whoever else, but not drawing attention to something to think yeah. about. And I'm not sure that my friends at FDA really thought about that particular possibility. Yeah. All right. So let's bring it home, Mike. What? are some takeaways and some lessons that we can learn from this situation? Yeah, so most importantly, to wrap this up, here are some takeaways. Obviously, you know, transparency is of utmost importance. There's no question about it. But at the same time, I would say, can we use a little common sense here? You know, in the clinical trial world, clinicaltrials.gov, the website was created a number of years ago for exactly the same reasons for transparency, for the, uh, you know, putting out information so that everybody can have access to it, which on the surface sounds like a good thing. But the question is, does it really work? You know, it's very confusing, never mind to just the lay public, but it's also confusing to professionals working in this in this industry to read through and really understand that information. Because I think you would agree with me, John, that any data can be interpreted in multiple ways, and when we have multiple interpretations of the same data, that leads to more confusion. So just yeah. putting the information out there, that's transparency, but the question is, does it really bias anything? Yeah, and, that's, and I'm glad you brought that point up because I was, I was just thinking about that earlier when if, if now we are required to submit a report for every single uh, occurrence of an adverse event, the likelihood that, that the same folks uh, are going to be reviewing that actually makes potentially could make the problem worse. It, it creates a lot more subjectiveness because, you know, there's still a human on the other end that is interpreting this information. And if, 
And if you have, you know, five different events and five different humans more or less interpreting the, the same information, but on five different reports, I mean, it, it seems like it could spin out of control pretty quickly. It certainly could. Another takeaway, as I just mentioned a couple of uh, minutes ago, is that all of these individual reports can, in fact, lead to a form of what I call over-reporting, which could be an opportunity for some companies to provide them a mechanism to, to, I don't want to go so far as to say hide, but certainly not draw attention to the most important information. Again, as I said, I don't think any of us, including my friends at FDA, should be naive enough to think that all of these uh, uh, reports are going to be investigated or or analyzed in the in the same to the same degree. That's just that's just simply not realistic. But most important, and I well, think you I, and I, John, do you mind if I chime in on that first? I was just thinking too that the other thing I think this this um, has the potential to do is to uh, uh, drive some uh, complacency practices. You know, some some not so best practices within a company because. You know, if they're, you know, it's back to that checkbox, fill out a form, be compliant perspective that, that we uh, talked about briefly uh, a little bit ago. You know, if, if now I'm just going through the motions, uh, I, I may not be so inclined to, to actually do a thorough um, investigation into what's really going on. I, I may just feel more compelled to fill out the form and submit it to FDA sort of thing. So I, I don't think that's going to uh, promote positive behaviors. Well, if you're correct, John, and I'm not saying that I disagree with you, that would be very unfortunate if we create new regulation that does not, to use your phrase, promote positive behavior, then we're actually going in the wrong, in the opposite direction. I mean, I hope I'm wrong. But, I hope I'm wrong. Let's I, just put it that way. And I hope you're wrong as well. Time will tell. You know, but, uh, but you know, it's good that we're having this discussion and we need more people in our industry having these discussions as well. But the most important thing, John, I would offer to our audience to keep in mind, and again, you and I have talked about this in the past in different forms, the most important thing is whether we're talking about summary reports or individual reports, that's just, quite frankly, a matter of paperwork. The most important thing is that companies collect the information, and actually, I take that one step further. They should not do so just passively, that is, rely on other people to report that information to them, but actually actively go out and look for problems. Once they collect that information, analyze it, try to determine what the root cause was. You you mentioned something that we talked about earlier on the quality side. Why the heck do we call it CAPA? Perhaps it should be PACA. The emphasis should be more on preventative as opposed to corrective. And that's not going to happen unless we're more active in getting that information. Try to try to figure out, um, you know, can this problem happen again? And if it can, what steps can we can we implement to try to minimize that chance of happening? And then most importantly, John, is acting if and when necessary. Because at the end of the day, all of this reporting is just simply a matter of paperwork. It's just simply, you know, a matter of words. And as they say, actions speak louder than words. So the most important thing is, you know, we have a professional obligation. Yes, medicine is a business. Yes, you know, we're in this in part to make money. But we also have an obligation to to do these things as well. So those are just some of my thoughts overall on FDA's uh, cancellation of this program and the, the changes to the, to the new 
program to the special 510k version of this program that's now being created. Any final thoughts from your side, John? No, I mean, it's one of those things that I, like you said a moment ago, I think we're just going to have to kind of wait and see how this unfolds. I mean, I, uh, honestly, I don't. I don't like these types of situations to be wait and see because you know it feels like there there could be we could be more. It feels like we could do more uh, from a collaborative uh, perspective between the agency and and industry on designing programs that are actually uh, good for industry, good for the uh, FDA, good for patients. And it feels like we're missing something here. But like I said, this is one of those things where, you know, maybe this is a good move. Maybe it could be tweaked. Uh, I guess the good news is uh, the silver lining here is that, you know, with what we've seen with with uh, current agency practices is that they're um, arguably speaking pretty proactive in, in iterating and tweaking things. Uh, and it seems like a more frequent basis than, than maybe historically has been the case. So, uh, and, and along those lines, John, I would just add very quickly, um, you and I are extremely fortunate. We have lots and lots of people from industry who listen to our podcast. But I actually know, as a matter of fact, I have a number of my friends at FDA as well as at some of the other regulatory agencies around the world who listen to us as well, although I'm sure they would never admit to that publicly. So I'm hoping that for those that are working in the regulatory agencies, including FDA, that they might take some of the suggestions that you and I have discussed today um, and at least talk about them and say, hey, you know, we've made some changes, but just like in quality where we use the concept of continuous improvement to, you know, to, we, we, we should use that same concept in yeah. regulatory as well. Uh, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And, and folks, a lot of the things that Mike and I have been talking about today You've heard us mention, uh, you know, just focusing on compliance. If you've ever heard uh, Mike chat about compliance before, uh, that's the uh, the academic of equivalent of being a C student. I hope I got that quote uh, correct. But but it is just bare minimum expectations. And you know, if you are just focused on compliance, you're a C student. And you know, and I beg you to to think about. Are your patients benefiting as much as they could if you sh- were able to shift your focus from just compliance to focusing on more on true quality? True quality is what we're all about here at Greenlight Guru. We've built an EQMS software platform specifically for the medical device industry, and it's designed by actual medical device professionals. There's, there's no other EQMS in the world that has been designed by med device professionals for med device professionals. So. If you want a better way, you want a true quality approach to your day-to-day operations as a medical device company, I would encourage you to go check out what we're doing at www.greenlight.guru. As always, I want to thank my guest, Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences. Folks, if he, he's, a, he's a regulatory guru. He, he knows his stuff. He consults for not only industry, but also with regulatory agencies, including FDA and Health Canada and others. So, He's certainly a person in the know, so reach out to him with any questions that you have on all things regulatory, and I'm confident that he can help you get some clarity on your path. So as always, this is the host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.